Alrighty, Adam, you there? Uh, did you see the, the Twitter space I was in five minutes ago? Were you actually in that Twitter space? Yeah, I mean, only for long enough to hear someone making the claim that Bitcoin is going to a million, and that makes um, sense. She was planning. Uh, if I'm, I don't understand this nomenclature, on drinking a cup full of no coiners tears this evening. Huh. Okay. Well, how yeah. how did so. no? Am I? Wait a minute. Am I annoyed? Is a no coiner the opposite of diamond hands? Is that what I am? I I don't I I I don't even know what a diamond hands is. Oh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm probably a no coiner and not a diamond hands. If, if I had to guess, I mean, if I had to pick between a no coiner and diamond yeah. hands, it feels like I'm more of a no, no coiner. But you know what? I, I don't even yeah. know. I don't even yeah. know. Um, so Tom is here. Tom, we we were just talking about your very enticing tweet about the Soviet Seymour Cray. Oh yeah, he's a character. Okay, so we got to start with it. So I just got, people want us to put the subject at the top. We are talking about, um, I got a book recommendation from George B. on Twitter um, after we did our space, uh, whatever it was, eight weeks ago uh, about the Superman on the story of Seymour Cray, but of supercomputing more generally, um, which I just finished and loved. There's so, there's so much to talk about there. But before we talk about that, Tom, now I want to talk. I just want to hear about this guy. So tell me his story. How did you meet him? Um, well, uh, you, you probably know that Sun had several things going on in Russia after the wall came down. Uh, and Dave Ditzel was driving this relationship with Boris Babayan. And he, he was kind of the, you know, People spoke of him reverentially because he got he got a lot of stuff done in spite of the fact that the Russia really had no infrastructure to build state of the art things. And I, I really only got to meet him for one little meeting. But uh, and what was the subject of the meeting? I mean, were you going to like? What was the... I think it was very early on. Basically, hi, we're from Sun. Maybe we should do something together. And this, what year is this? This was 92. Oh, man. This is like, I mean, this is th- only three years after, or two, like maybe depending on when it was in 92. Yeah. And it is, and, I mean, and, uh, Tom, I find that it is hard to express to folks who post-date. I mean, Adam, do you remember the wall coming down? Sure, I remember the wall coming down, but I was, but I was a kid. Uh, but I remember it as a moment of significance, but, you know. From I think it was ten. Okay, so you maybe a bit too young to appreciate how permanent the wall felt when it was up. It felt like I mean, it just felt like it, this was n- never going to change. I don't know, Tom. That's how I felt. Oh yeah, yeah, and and so when when I did the trip in '92, people were still in this kind of state of euphoria about things are open and we're going to be normal and have great relationships and blah blah blah, and uh, it was a really really fun trip. To Moscow, that must have been unbelievable. Yeah, with, uh, seriously, with much much vodka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, is, it is, but, is this the winter? The summer? When is this? Uh, summer, beautiful summer. Oh my god! Uh, mo- most of, mostly, we were talking to this other group uh, headed by Sasha Galitsky, who has since become an international venture capitalist, and in fact the the guy I worked closely with at Sun, Jeff Baer, who 
started up this relationship with Sasha's group. Now the two of them are venture capitalists, and you may know them at, at uh, whatever that firm is. Um, uh, oh, that one, the one that passed on us. Um, We're going to have to be a lot more yeah. specific. <laughs> They're rooting from the side. They're rooting from the side, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the firm, but, but they, they specialized in you know, east-west deals until things got really bad with the relationships and so now now they're a little bit more normal and, and so tom what did russian you know uh and then you know before that soviet computers look like or, or soviet computers as they emerged out of the soviet union look like when you visited well they they mostly cloned western computers so they cloned the ibm 360 they cloned the pdp 11s and pdp 8s this um, is like the concord ski of pdp 11s yeah, but the whole manufacturing infrastructure was so weak. Now, the, the best story I heard, though, is they, they cloned the Sun 3. And, uh, but the trouble is the pro- they couldn't get the processors, and you know, they were building their own processors. And every processor was broken. So, in fact, they ended up, when it worked, it, you had a lot of custom kernel hacks per processor. Not per type of processor, per processor. And so it was just pathetic. Wow. That's that's pretty incredible. So so it's like it's like what the Univac one guys were doing back in the fifties. Just just you know, total total lack of manufacturing prowess. So, so each one off the line would have its own sort of customized collection of stuff yeah you do what whatever hack it took to kind of make it work <clears throat> and it, i think it was coming from the zill limousine factory that was the other key <laughs> that's incredible so you know the... and so did they have any real de novo systems of their own or, or was it all just clones yeah well well boris Babiano was known for the elbrus family so that those are pretty architecturally interesting um, Wikipedia talks a little bit about them, but you know, superscalar way, way before other people were doing that. But you know, again, they just kind of just barely worked, and at not not very impressive clock speeds. I yeah, that, that's crazy. In an act of supreme cruelty. Supreme cruelty. Uh oh, I'm in an act of supreme cruelty. I'm having to talk with myself. In an act of supreme cruelty, I Tom the Twitter app decided to exhaust all memory as it as as you were telling the Sun 3 clone story. I'm going to have to pick that up on the recording. But um, it's the, 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 this whole... Pre- I mean, Adam, wouldn't you watch a movie about Tom going to Moscow in 1992? I just feel like I, there's there's I, so much I there. Make, I, I would make that movie. Are you kidding? I would, I, would, I would write that screenplay if I could. That'd be, that'd be so much fun. <laughs> oh, man. It just feels like... That. Tom, it, did, it must have felt that, that way even at the time to realize that, like, the... That this probably felt historic, I imagine. Is Tom there? Oh dear! Oh no! This is you know Twitter Spaces. You were doing better, and now oh, there's Tom. Maybe I think Tom got bounced out. Oh man! Um, all right, we're gonna. Well, we're, oh, there's Tom. Tom, you back? Hi there. Testing, testing. Yeah, yeah, you're here. You're here. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, so anyway, I, I actually wasn't one of the main people going to Moscow, but 
I was on my way to Geneva, and so I tagged along. And uh, the Geneva story is a whole other story, but that was fun too. <laughs> so, we, how did you? Uh, so, how did you end up meeting Boris? How did that? What was the context for that meeting? Um, I don't remember. Dave Ditzel somehow knew about him and had started a relationship. And then, then eventually, Sun bought his whole group, and they they worked for Sun for like twelve years. Is this the St. Petersburg? Is this the St. Petersburg group? Was this where no. were they based? Okay, they were they were based in Moscow. So there were there were two Moscow groups. Okay, there was Boris's group, and there was a uh, Sasha's group. Sasha's group uh, worked on VPN and networking stuff. And uh, he he hit before, you know, before the wall fell. Sasha was working on satellite networking technology, which was pretty amazing. Um, but then the St. Petersburg group was after this trip. I don't. Somebody found them, and then that's where a lot of cool people came from. Yeah, yeah, certainly there were some extreme, we had some extremely bright colleagues um, out of the, the the Sun offices in Russia. Certainly, uh, but that must have been amazing. And I would love to know more about the the, the kind of the computers that he built. Uh, and so, Tom, you said that you, you never met Seymour Cray. Um, no, I remember him dying vividly um, because I was the, the I was with some Sun engineers when he died. I just remember. John Johnson, one of our colleagues, proposing a nanosecond of silence to memorialize Seymour Cray, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I, I don't know. Now I, I can't I can't figure out if that's like if, if that's appropriate or not. I don't know, but, but you know, it was what it was. Um, but the Tom, have you read this book, The Superman? Yeah, in fact, I, I just reread it because I saw saw it was coming. I. I, this book is mesmerizing to me. I, I, I felt like there was a lot. That, so, uh, the, so Adam, a couple of things that, that I felt I came away from the, the, the book from book with. So, one, the something that we don't really appreciate about Moore's Law is how it means. It's not just doing uh, more with less. It's not just or not just about about greater transistor density. It's not just about greater transistors per dollar. It's also about much more power per watt, much more like many more transistors per watt, much more compute power per watt, much more efficiency. And Tom, I can't believe how how power hungry these machines were. So Adam, they had a a board, like a daughter board in I think the sixty six hundred, that the CDC sixty six hundred. That was three kW, just like a board, a board. Wow. Yeah, and it's like, oh no, it's like, well, how do you even cool that? Like, oh well, no problem. We're just going to use we'll we'll, we'll use liquid cooling. You're like, um, okay. And so they on the Cray two, they are spraying this thing with Freon because water cooling is is insufficient. It's just yeah, yeah. It, well, I, I, back back at Princeton, yeah, we had the three sixty ninety one. Which this book talks about never never working, but it worked fine. But it, it was water cooled, and and one day the IBM guy forgot to turn on the water at, when booting the machine, and they they had a core meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's interesting because yeah, the, this book does talk about the three hundred and sixty model ninety as, and it ended up being the subject of a lawsuit between CDC and IBM because they yeah. were accusing that machine of being entirely vaporware. But you actually you had one. Well, it 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 was. Way pre-announced. They, they announced the Model 90, 
and then later on uh, changed the announcement to, ni- to 91 and 92, and then 92 never shipped, but eventually a 95 shipped, you know. But it, it was uh, a killer machine, but it wasn't quite the 6600. And so what was the difference between, I just remember the 360 line well enough to know, because I know like the, the 85 was the top of the line when they originally announced the 360, right? I mean, that was the, the machine. On- no, I, I think 85 wasn't in the original announcement. Oh, was it not? Okay. The 85 is famous to me because that is the first machine to have caches. Right. And I, I just love, I know I've retold this story before, but I just love it so much about the, the fact that when they developed the cache, they were describing the approach they took for the IBM Systems Journal. And they had not, they, as far as they were concerned, they were buffering memory. So we're going to call this a, a muffer as a memory buffer. <laughs> and the, the editor of the Systems Journal was like, wow, this seems like a really important concept. But like, I don't know, muffer? Like, can we do better than muffer? And that's how, like brainstorming with the engineers. He came up with the idea of like, it sounds like you're kind of like leaving something and then coming back later to it, like a, like a cache, like, a, like, yeah, yeah, like a cache. Like, all right, well, let's call it a cache. Yeah. Much better name. But so the, so the, the 90 is obviously, except was the 85 water cooled or is it just the, the, the 91, 92, 95? It, it probably was. Um, that one, one of the key differentiation of, of the Ambal machines in the 70s was that they were air-cooled instead of water-cooled. So I think mo- most of the higher-end IBM stuff was water-cooled. So, so Brian, in, in addition to the 3KW, can you give some other specs? Like, what, what was a supercomputer? Okay, so the one that... The, well, so there are a couple of interesting things. One, it, it, and, you know, I don't know how much of the book to take is apocryphal, uh, especially given what Tom is saying, but the... Um, one thing that's interesting about Cray is he... It actually reminds me so much of, of Clary, Clarence Kelly Johnson at, at Skunk Works about he's deliberately not trying to be on the bleeding edge of everything. So in particular, well, in particular, he, he did not really believe in the microprocessor, which uh, I didn't really realize that you, there were mal- microprocessor malcontents, but he, he felt that he was going to get better performance by using effectively discrete components than, than using a microprocessor, um, which is probably true at the time, I guess. I mean, he was certainly getting ridiculous clock speeds that were far greater than any, than any microprocessor. What, is that just because the process wasn't there yet? that's my read on it, Tom. I don't know if you got, I mean, you know, you were definitely on the scene then. I mean, what, what what was the rationale for what was Amdahl? Amdahl was also not using a microprocessor, right? No, no. Yeah. The the seventies was way too early for serious microprocessors. Um, you know, the, you know, I'd be surprised if there was any, real supercomputing done on them before 1985 on micro so there you go yeah so so cray is uh, so these are all with effectively discrete components so he is all about getting better performance with shorter path length and so that means he's jamming more and more components into smaller and smaller area so a lot of what they're doing is refrigeration i mean that's like he at, at both at era and then cdc and then Cray, and then Cray Computer. Because another big theme I have to say is these folks are getting funding at one company, and then that company becoming kind of ossified with management, 
and in you know very familiar themes than rebelling and going to a new company. And so Cray, they all leave ERA together and they form CDC. They, the, the, they form CDC by like getting money from like friends and family in the in the 60s or basically like selling the company at Tupperware parties was my read of that Tom I don't know if you had to um which was and they so they 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 were able to raise money to start control data obviously very important company and then Cray Seymour Cray is at CDC um he does so one thing I did not know the the CDC 1604 which I, I think I think Tom I even I, I showed you my beloved manual for the CDC sixteen oh four, um, the that number, the actual number for that, um, comes from the ERA eleven oh three, which they all worked on at ERA, added to their street address, which was five oh one Park in Minneapolis. Which I felt like it feels like something's don't change, Adam. Doesn't that feel like something? That, that... I, Totally wonderful. And you're right. Like they're out to lunch and someone says it and they're like, dude, we have to. Obviously, we have to. I didn't we have like a port that was four fifty for four fifty mission. I feel like we used four fifty mission in some something that we, we did. had we had a sentinel value in um in the Fishworks product, which had to do with the day that we all sort of dropped our books simultaneously and told management they were leaving to go do this other thing. Which was that was delicious, by the way. That was like I, 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 we all all five of us separately told our management that we were leaving at the same moment, like Godfather style, which yeah. I think we even called it Godfather style at the time, if I'm remembering correctly. That's right. Or we named it the Red Wedding, and then fifteen years later. Well, so but this is a very common theme because this basically happens again and again and again for supercomputing in particular. And so they leave. He leaves. Uh, CDC, he decides, has lost its way and leaves to go start Crate Research. Um, the, then CDC has this – I would say, man, the thing about supercomputing, they are doing incre- – it's like – I swear, Adam, if you think that we at Oxide are nuts, the, the history of supercomputing will assure you that there are people much crazier than we are. I mean, like, literally, it, it's, like, it's like Oxide but a factor of 10 in every conceivable dimension – they raise a factor of 10 more money with a factor of 10 more risk. And when these companies end, they fly into the mountain. Like every I mean, single one of them. That's sort of by design and by definition, though, right? I mean, if you are building an oxide rack, you are by definition not building a supercomputer. It, 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 right? It, it, like if supercomputing is just defined by the fact that it's an order of magnitude past what anyone would consider reasonable. That's right. I think, no, that's a good right. point. And, and, and like, even, even on the 3KW number, that's honestly not that extreme, right? Like, I mean, if you think about people like Cerebrus today, that wafer chip thing is 23KW. Yes. <laughs> which, is, um, <laughs> which is crazy. I mean, it's, it, it, and they had, like, they had to solve many unsolved problems in order to be able to deal. I mean, dealing with with the thermals there has been a huge challenge to the point where, and I mean, we get because we share a board member with Cerebrus, I get to answer a lot of thermal questions. I have to reassure Pierre that like we are thermally nowhere near as adventurous as Cerebrus is. Um, but the, the, the and I, I mean, I think you're, you're right, man. There's something catalogical there that, like, it's a supercomputer, so of course they are are going for 10x. The thing that is surprising to me is that these companies, when they fail, right into the mountainside, 
like people learn that they fail because they go to work and like they've been locked out of work. Like the badges don't work. And that I, I feel is I a mean, bit why atypical. Is, why is that so surprising though? Right? I mean, like, <laughs> if, if you build a mediocre oxide rack, you will sell a mediocre number of them. If you build a supercomputer that is not the superiest supercomputer there is, no one cares because like that's old news. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I mean, right? If, like, if, all, if all you're selling is the fact that you're number one and you're not number one anymore, you're in big trouble. No, you're right. This is, this makes, it makes total sense. It just is brutal because you keep reading about it over and over and over and over again. And so you, and I remember this happened and Adam, I was asking you earlier, if you remember my ETA systems phase. So ETA systems was a, a, a skunk works effectively inside a CDC to do a new supercomputer. Um, and they, Really interesting stuff. Do you remember ETA, Tom? I don't know if you if you had any overlap or. Uh, I didn't know much at the time, but I've read a fair amount about it. Um, and I think I, I I think actually Larry McVoy worked at ETA for like a summer. But the so the, the ETA is making a supercomputer, and just like Tom, what you and Matt are saying, you know, they're vying for number one, and they're 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 not getting there. Um, and so these guys all come to work, and like they've been locked out of work. And the the doors are locked. Buses come. They pick them all up. They go to a, a theater in St. Paul, and they think that they are going to hear that they, the company's been acquired. But CDC gets on the stage and is like, you're all out of a job, basically. Like, you've been – there is no ETA. And even though you – and I just remember when I – reading about this and just being – mesmerized by it I, it just feel it feels so graphic you know i mean adam we've lived charmed lives and that we've I, I certainly i have never lost my job this way and it feels like it would be really upsetting oh for like the company to run out of money to, to run out of money and just like suddenly it's not like okay yeah things are getting worse and i mean like okay yeah we know we're struggling but we're still kind of collectively believing and then like bullet in the brain it's all it's all over well i think that's part of like how, how about the story how about the story about the ERA guys who one day they wake up and the company's been sold? It's like, wait, <laughs> I, I thought I was running the company. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Reading about it in the paper. Um, but so, it, so ETA, it, and I actually remember, and so Adam, I, there was, I, I wanted to like, uh, in part because I was having to go out to Minneapolis to, Bertrand was going to the University of Minnesota for some reason. And I was really interested to learn as much as possible about this event. And so I talked to a couple of people that were there. And they, I mean, they told me that like, it was even like crazier than it sounds. And it, people didn't really see it coming. The this one guy described for me going over to a colleague's house and that formerly ex colleague and they are sending uh, faxing resumes out to Pyramid Computer and they're faxing resumes out and then and then Pyramid is faxing back a response on every resume and they're all hired so they're basically like they're all huddled together in this house all getting jobs in California and then everybody's packing up and leaving for California. That's crazy. Is that crazy? Yeah. I just felt like, I felt like, is this like John Steinbeck writing a novel about computing or something? It just felt like it's like this very, and, you know, because people were giving up on effectively Minnesota as at the same time as they were leaving, ET, or, or had been 
axed from ETA. But so this happens again and again. So you're, Adam, you're asking about some of these extremes. So Steve Chen is this guy at Cray. So one thing about that, but nothing about Seymour Cray, man, that guy does not like uh, – What's the right word? He built something and then immediately wants to go on to the next thing. So he does not want to see things through. I really like to see things all the way like into a customer's hands. I think, Adam, you and I have that same disposition, certainly, of wanting to see it from initial idea all the way to running in production. And I want to know, like, when it falls down along the way, I want to know why and I want to pick it back up. And Seymour Cray does not have this interest. (laughs) Sounds a lot simpler. It is kind of simpler to me. It's like, all right. So he just like goes on to the next thing. So he is like the Cray one is effectively not even done. And he's already decided that like, no, no, like we did it all wrong there. I'm going to go do the the one true machine in the Cray two. Um, And he's not interested at all in the Cray one. And in particular, he's got zero interest in software compatibility between the, it's like just software compatibility, not something he cares about at all. Um, I, I mean, and, and software compatibility is also not really a cultural value in supercomputing. Well, like, yes. You will build the software from scratch, of course, uh, obviously. Oh. Right? Like. <laughs> well, but, but then uh, Cray would have died a lot sooner if they hadn't done the Cray XMP. Well, that's it. And so the Cray XMP was led by Steve. Well, Unclear. Steve Chen, very Steve Chen, uh, according to the book anyway, very clearly willing to take credit for the the, the, uh, yeah. the ex- and totally unclear how much credit is due or not due. But the um, Steve Chen becomes the face of of the Cray XMP, and then later the YMP, which is Adam. This is basically the Cray One, kind of the continuing the Cray One, key, maintaining binary compatibility with the Cray One in, in particular. Well, Cray goes off to the, the, the Cray 2. He then leaves Cray um, and the, the go, goes, ultimately separates into what becomes Cray Computer as opposed to Cray Research. Steve Chen then leaves Cray. And this is like, a, sorry, I'm leading up to this example of like just nuttiness. So he leaves Cray. IBM decides to fund Steve Chen's new supercomputer startup. This is in 1988. IBM puts 150 million bucks into the company. That's that's a lot of money. I mean, now and then, like Jeez. that would be a ton of money now. It's like like that is I mean, that's like that'd be like raising a 600 million dollar seed now. You know, it it might be worth um, keeping in mind who buy these machines, right? So, um, like maybe it it's it's more it's more useful to think of supercomputing kind of like aerospace, right? It's like the government is going to pay whatever it needs to build the machine that's going to let it simulate, uh, you know, material degradation in nuclear weapons. That's what these machines are built for. So uh, maybe it's not so surprising that these things were so well-funded. Yeah, that's what always bothered me about the the HPC world is is, is, it's not actual economics. It's, it's not it's actually economics. economics. That's right. Yeah. It's not actually economics, and it doesn't force rational economic decisions. And so, the, the Steve Chen's startup, this this outlandish one hundred fifty million bucks in. So, Adam, they are making a they make a seventy eight layer board, which That's is a just, lot of layers. I, I, 
how 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 thick was that? Great question. So uh, definitely, folks at Oxide were kind of doing the math on that, and Rick is like, "That's like at least like a half an inch thick." It's like plywood at this point. It's plywood. It's plywood, and like there are lots of. I mean, if you got to back drill that thing, like that, that's it's just it's just nutty. So and it and they on, how many layers did you say again? Exactly seventy eight, maybe a quarter of an inch. Seventy, sure. I mean, it's. I mean, we have got a what we've got a, a twenty eight and a sixteen layer board, and both those things are considered to be like big boards. Uh, seventy eight is a very large. I number. mean, the fact that we're using like. Uh, English, you know, woodworking measurements like quarter inch, half inch. That's right, exactly. Rather than like millimeters, <laughs> explains right. how big it is. It is a is a board that is four fathoms deep. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, you're going to need a bigger ruler. You're going to need a bigger ruler. It, maybe it has something to do with signal integrity or something. Like maybe every second layer is like a ground plane or something. That's like that. For sure. I mean, I'm sure that there are like somewhat rational reasons, but it's also what? happening at a time. What year are they building this in? That was in, started in 1988. Which, I mean, by the way, like that's not right about the fu- the vision for the future. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like these guys actually were all kind of like, I mean, don't want to put it too sharp a point on it, but they were kind of wrong. Right, it, and it was pretty clear by 1988 that that was probably not the trajectory. Certainly by the mid 90s, it was it, it was crystal clear, and this was a, a dead end. I would say. So, aren't all supercomputers hot rods? I mean, necessarily hot rods, but hot rods in the sense of like they're one-offs and they're performance art, and they are never meant to be a platform or. Or, or like the next version is supposed to be starting from scratch anyway. Is it, isn't that true throughout the history of supercomputing? I mean, there um, are small batch things, right? Like like IBM Blue Jeans. Um, you know, there's probably a hundred of those in the world. So I worked on a Sun compilation, which was pretty much commodity x86 hardware with a third party interconnect. Um, there's sort of a difference between grand challenge supercomputing where you are aiming for a scalability and a problem type that addresses some very big patrons needs versus service bureau supercomputing, which is what nci.org.au did for uh, a long time and still does it, although I stopped being associated with them. And um, so, yeah, the Sun Constellation system that we had, which was 1500 processors, um, you know, it was a reasonably big machine. It was the biggest in Australia, but it wasn't by any means a um, grand challenge machine. Yeah, it was just, it was commodity CPUs strung together. And it's like, ultimately, that's a better use of kind of, of humanity. <laughs> it's like... One of the things about that was that it, it existed within a software um, framework by then of uh, distributed style message passing um, support rather than write you know, screaming vectorized loops and maybe split them up across a few CPUs which all had access to the same memory which was interleaved umpty bazillion times, um, which was the old, you know, CDC 7600 and uh, later, you know, 205, you know, the 512-way interleaved memories and I think, well, anyway, 512-bit memories, but anyway, crazy high bandwidth memories but shared memories between a bunch of CPUs. 
when the software support for message passing actually got to a point where you could actually scale out around about clusters. I think that was a, you know, that was when I think even Seymour Cray had agreed uh, shortly before his passing that um, he had been sort of hit over the head by microprocessors enough to kind of accept that they had a place. Yeah, microprocessors had a place. And they were, he, so in particular, Adam, he goes down the gallium arsenide route. Um, he, that we're going to make silicon switch. We're going to be faster switching than silicon can offer. So that that was kind of his angle, especially at Cray Computer, working on the Cray Three and Cray Four, a company that also ends with people being locked out of their workplace. And <laughs> it's like it's like the common theme across all of these. So, but Adam, your question about like are are these kind of one offs? I mean, I would argue that supercomputing today is in the GPGPU. That is the kind of special purpose, high performance computing today. It happens to have a much, much broader commercial application than testing nuclear weapons, which is what effectively what the commercial application was for supercomputing is a little bit broader than that. Um, And so now I think between the uses we see with GPGPU and DL and ML, I mean, there's a broader use of it. So I would say all of that kind of zeitgeist has gone into the to the GPGPUs, but I would love to um, get the perspectives of others for sure who are going to be better versed on this than I. Hey, I, I, if, um, I, I want to mention, uh, put in a plug for Shaheen Khan, who I see listening here, but he, he has this whole uh, Dead Architecture Society meeting every year oh nice <laughs> and, which should be coming up shaheen can you talk yeah i i just i i invited shaheen to speak um so yeah if he's if he's around yeah, they'll click. hey shaheen how are you hey thanks for having me up here i'm really enjoying this and and i was just kind of since i have the microphone it's also the interconnect i think that the gpgpu is is really where the action is in terms of performance but it's also highlighting the importance of the fabric. So if you look at the latest, greatest, it's like the Cray, HPE now, Shasta, Slingshot, Slingshot Interconnect, or really the NVIDIA Mellanox Interconnect. And in fact, the system that was spoken of earlier, the one in Australia, uh, that I believe was a Mellanox Interconnect too, or was it the big fat switch that Bechtelsheim built? <laughs> right. Um, it was, in fact, not the humongous, the humongous switch was the uh, copper 120 gigabit cables. This was the one that was based on, um, I forget how many ports, uh, I'm going to say 576, but I don't remember if I've multiplied that outright, but it was um, sort of 10-inch rack unit um, switches, and we had four of those in the core, I believe, and they were all running CXP 120 gigabit um, trunks out to um, edge uh, optical CXP out to um, the nodes, uh, sorry, out to the edge switches, which were basically the constellation, the rack was the blade chassis. And then in the constellation uh, chassis, there were four slots for Mellanox uh, switch fabric. Crazy machine. For, for people it was, it was a good machine. It could put out 35 kilowatts peak per rack. So cooling was a real issue, and I've got some stories about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, not, not, not kind of grand challenge stuff, but um, the previous machine, the uh, Altex B3700 that they had, uh, nearly died as a result of 
a really interesting failure mode after a uh, thunderstorm supercell, which knocked out the UPS for the management part of the machine, but not the raw power for the interconnect. There was some raw power for the <laughs> node. And um, so, and, but it had also knocked out the um, water chill loop because the uh, floor was flooded and the sensors had been installed on the basis that they thought, well, the reason the floor will be flooded is because the water chill loop is um, leaking. And so it shut down the pumps. So they had no cooling nice. and no way for the management stuff, which was turned off, to turn off any of the nodes, which didn't actually have that as a separate um, monitoring thing devolved onto each node so it was just sheer luck that the main admin lived near enough by that after the supercell he kind of got his subaru and scooted through huge amounts of hail on the roads and turned off every single rack by hand wow, wow. that's so, yeah. a fantastic story um i i have been watching because i have a login on this machine i've had a login for the last two years i haven't really been using it but i've been getting all the maintenance notifications and i have to say that Lately, basically, the failure mode of these big machines is that the luster file system craps itself, <laughs> and then a, a consultant comes out and kind of like looks at it for four days and then gets it back going again. But um, I yeah. think that machine currently, the the current machine at the NCI, and just about every well, sort of run in the mill machine these days is just uh, InfiniBand, um, just and and that's Mellanox, right? So Mellanox EDR or whatever. Um, but there are some there are some startups doing some new stuff in interconnects. I, I'd be interested in hearing other people's takes on like what Rocketport are doing and um, what is it in Fabrica is the other one. Yeah, and I, Shane, I think you made this. I, I think assuming this is what you're tagging into, Shane, you're making a very good point about the interconnect kind of becoming everything effectively. That the, the supercomputing kind of switches sometime in the 80s, 80s to 90s, where it is all about connecting compute elements quickly with low latency and high bandwidth rather than making the single fastest compute element. Well, when you, t t totally. When you go to the supercomputer well, show, right, people talk about the, the Cray era, which was a solid you know, 40 years from 1950 to 1990. And it was all single processor performance. But then after that, it's parallel, and then the, the interconnect dominates. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the Cray, Cray era, quote-unquote, kind of ends at the memory wall. And, I mean, the guy sees ahead sort of to that to the point where he starts innovating on things like DDR memory um, because you just need better signal integrity for it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, even a grand challenge style supercomputer only gets to innovate on maybe two, two, maybe three dimensions, right? You're not going to have a whole new processor and interconnect and silicon process of good grief gallium arsenide. Um, like, or, or you, you can do all that. With, even with a billion dollar seed budget, you can't with good conscience innovate on all those different axes at the same time and think this isn't just going to end catastrophically. Well, yeah, right? so you, you can do all that. It's just going to find yourself locked out of work one morning and everyone is going to be waiting around for a bus to come pick you up. So, yeah, I mean, you definitely, I agree with you, Matt, that you, well, they, sorry, Tom. These, but, these, these days, not even the governments can afford to do the. That's right. Yes. I mean, the, the, and that's what makes these numbers seem otherworldly because it's just not something that would ever get funding now from anybody, a government, certainly not from the private sector. But Shaheen, sorry, I think you were saying something about the, about the importance of the, the interconnect. 
Yeah, I was saying that I actually liken it to a glue, and because it is the glue, and I say that the viscosity of the glue is the issue. And if you have like a really watery glue, that's Ethernet, and if you have like cement, that's SMP, and you got everything in between. And and you know, ultimately, you want address coherency as well as bandwidth, as well as latency, but uh, you have to kind of clear one hurdle before you get to the next one. And right now, it's all, as was said, all distributed memory, message passing, and that was made to work. And I think Seymour didn't think that was going to work. He was really relying on the programming environment to be an issue, and I think that's why he kept... Now, to their credit, they did do parallel systems. So they had, like, I think the C90 was, like, 16 CPUs. And by the way, that was a 53-layer board, if I remember correctly, and that was in production. Yeah, and wow. they also had like some levels of 3D stacking that is now like what AMD announced today. They had like equivalent of that between boards. There was this thing called, you know, zero insertion force, but then they also had these uh, like cloth looking things they would, that they would put in between boards. So when the boards would be inserted and then they would be pressed on top of each other, signals would go vertically up and down. It was like a crazy system, but it was production and it was 16... CPUs at the time with lots of memory. And so one of the things. Sorry, go ahead, Courtney. So one of the things I, I, I wanted to kind of point out there, um, when talking about like the larger ecosystem problem uh, that Cray faced, especially, I, I, they were kind of. While Seymour Cray was very uh, advanced in, in trying to drive hardware technology innovations, right? The, the software side was a huge problem for them as times changed through the 70s and 80s. Like, one of the things you had, you know, in the 70s, you'd you'd sell to a national lab or to, you know, a, a defense program, and they'd help you develop your compilers. They would write their own OS, and you'd tell the machine, and then you could, you know, your next generation didn't have to be compatible or whatever. By the late 80s, that was, that was becoming less acceptable, right? You had to have a good compiler suite. Um, who expected to have, uh, you know, an well, OS that was that was that would run on several generations of machines? Yeah, even in the mid mid eighties, you know, people were starting to demand Unix. That, that's part of the ETA story is how they they had shift gears to to support Unix. And, and right. even and, today, and then I mean, by ninety three, you had the end of the Cold War, or ninety one rather. You, you know, you had the end of the Cold War, and all of a sudden, this funding dries up, right? Uh, and, and even Cray saw Cray, not Seymour Cray, but you know Cray Computer saw the need to do to do MPP stuff and came out with you know the T3D and the T3E, which were very massively parallel machines in the kind of way that you might recognize today, right? Using you know commodity alpha CPUs. Well, yeah, and Courtney, you're getting to, you're tacking into a very kind of question that I actually would love to ask Shaheen because Simeon, you had this question about what was the influence of Cray on Sun. And Courtney, you're talking about these machines and where they're using, you know, more commodity silicon. Of course, the the logical extreme of that was the Cray Business Systems Division, BSD, making the C6400 um, out of Spark CPUs. And Shaheen, were you at Sun when that acquisition went, when we bought Cray BSD? Yeah, I was. Uh, so before that happened, Floating Point Systems which was actually one of the comp- one of the systems that the Bulgarians had uh, had cloned and i think bulgaria was like one of the hotbeds of technology for the eastern bloc so floating point systems was building uh, 
attached processors, uh, accelerators, essentially. And then uh, they had graduated to build Unix systems with a vector attachment. And the CPU was based on an NCR chip in the old days. And it was like a, you know, so they decided that they needed a standard CPU and standard OS. So they cut a deal with Sun to use Spark. And that was the beginning of it. And it was like a, you know, it was a FPS model 500 and then model 500 EX. And then, and had, then, then FPS bought Cray, is that right? Or and then, no, Cray bought FPS. Bought FPS. Okay. And so and that's where Cray, Cray BSD a, comes from. That is correct. Yes. Okay. So, so and then, and then, yeah. And then SGI bought Cray and didn't want any Spark stuff. And then SGI bought Cray. And of course, you know, Daryl Ram, who I think is, I saw, I think I saw him in the audience. He was on the SGI side of it. And, and the history of it is really quite funny. And well, you know, it is what it is, but it is also funny. And uh, because SGI really had no use for this system and they should have just killed it. Uh, but they didn't for whatever reason, despite, you know, advice to the contrary. And they decided that they were so confident of the SGI origin that was about to come out right around then. And it was a really nice CC NUMA system. And, that, uh, and they sold it to Sun. So when I was at uh, Cray, we were basically told that SGI is buying the company and we have no use for you. So go sell your division to somebody. And we started shopping it around. And we did a whole prospectus. And I remember in our prospectus, we said that whoever buys us, we think we can sell like 150 systems in our first year and we sold like 200 system in the first quarter at I, at sun yes it was like incredible okay and so shaheen the the purchase price of cray bsd by sun well i think rumors are varying between like you know 15 million dollars and 19 million dollars and we had a whole inventory and the idea was that if you sell the inventory then you owe me another 10 and of course the whole thing was done like within 30 days. It was like no problem, right? So, and I had heard that the purchase price was not something that was well known inside of Sun. I had heard actually numbers even south of that, that it was below 10. But apparently, but it, it was definitely, it, 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 this is the best acquisition in the history of the industry without question. It, it, it is certainly purchased for what, less than 25, right, Shaheen? And I think it was certainly less than 30. I think McNeely called it, or somebody called it, the best acquisition since Babe Ruth. I, yeah. uh, hi. <laughs> well, hi, Gene. Thanks, thanks for mentioning me. Um, I, I, so I'm D uh, Daryl Ram. I was on the SGI side. There was, uh, there was a faction of SGI people that were violently opposed to this sale, um, and there was a faction of people that wanted just to, to sell it. And the, the wanting to sell CBS seemed to really come from within inside Cray. So the Cray supercomputer guys um, arguably had wanted to, you know, didn't really see a future with, with the business systems and wanted to get rid of it. Um, I found it about by literally walking into the office one morning and finding my, my boss there and, and uh, my general manager I work for and, and saying, what's going on? And he's like, well, they, they want to sell CBS. He'd already been over to the CEO and, and president and, and pounding on the table trying to uh, undo the deal and he failed and I said and I basically accused him of failing and had an argument with him. And he said, well, well 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 you go and do better then and I look okay well fuck it I will so I walked across to the corporate headquarters event with our, our uh, lawyer and with the president and I just on the spur of the moment made up a, you know had a list of customers that we knew that we're Sun was running out of power on their high-end servers and we were doing an incredible job with competing with the challenger line and uh you know, I already just by a couple of accounts already had like ten or twenty million dollars of business, and said, "Why would you give this to Sun?" And 
I think the response to me was, what do you want us to do? Just buy it and bury the spark stuff? I said, absolutely. That's exactly what I want you to do. I'll give you a shovel. Ab- absolutely. And, and, and in parallel with that, you know, I, you know, big secret, you know, I was trying to hire Shaheen. We were trying to hire Shaheen personally. And we, we, we just did not want this deal to happen. Uh, it was the stupidest deal ever. And it just irritates me when everybody says SGI, you know, made a bad decision. There was a group of people inside SGI that fought like hell to stop it, but we failed. It was. It wasn't the stupidest you ever. It was the best you ever. What are you talking about? It was uh, <laughs> the. Well, then, so there, it, then, then, then there was SGI and Windows NT. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, oh, no, yeah, come on, that's, that's not right to do this. Poor Daryl. I mean, that's that, that, that's that's unfair <laughs> to bring that up. That is unfair. <laughs> exactly. We but, said no, no but, one is to mention Bob Bishop. But but at that point in time, just I mean, Sun had done so well with these product lines, but it was running out of steam at the high end. Yeah. Silicon Graphics had had accidentally fallen on this incredible product, the Challenge. Um, line which was just killing it at the high end and to, to give away uh, it made no sense at all it was just insane so that product did so on the kind of the sun side of that um, it, the we that bought for again south of 30 that did a billion two of revenue in its first year I believe Shaheen <laughs> Um, it, oh, it was. I think the, the story there was that I remember we launched the product like January 17th and then it's like you know April 5th or something, and uh, Sun is getting ready for their quarterly uh, report, the financial analyst report. And, uh, and, and we, had a, we had a meeting among you know, the marketing team, and we decided that we, this was our tagline. So I call up Clark Masters, my boss, and I say, 100 days, 100 systems, $100 million. Oh, and it was like such well, an irresistible wow. tagline <laughs> that I think Ed used it on the financial thing. And then from then on, it was like the only product where the revenue was disclosed. And then, of course, it just went from strength to strength. It was. It, when that product, we, that product was the right product at the right time. It was the right bet in exactly the right way at exactly the right time. It was hitting, it's hitting the internet. At, internet is going supernova. People are unable. This is long before distributed systems are really sure. a, a thing. And so what, what, year, what year was that, 97? That's 97. That's that not, was 97. Yeah, you know, the other big thing, uh, Brian, was SAP R3. Uh, absolutely. Everybody was moving SAP R3, and it was a shared memory hub. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So this is – so, Adam, you know we're, like, we're, we're within nanometers here of the origin story of D-Trace because this is me working on I, my birthday in December 3rd, to, uh, 1997 – being, I basically worked 24 hours that day because we had this SAP benchmark that we were doing for, for oh, GM. Right. Yes. Do you remember this? Yes, yes I do. <laughs> so this is, this is itself is an incredible story. So we've got, this thing has, and I'm, I am in the poor software group. And, you know, we, of course, you know, we've got maybe one E10K that's going to maybe make its way to us at some point. I have basically never seen one of these machines. And there are five associated with this benchmark, five racked out E10K, 64 processors, 64 gigs of RAM. How much money is that? That is so much money that finance was in on the calls because they needed to know when the machines could be released for revenue recognition. So this is like you are sitting on the quarterly numbers, basically, for a multi-billion dollar company running a benchmark. And Shaheen, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you were aware of this going on when it was happening. It was definitely a big deal when it was happening. The- oh, yeah, yeah. You know, part of the thing is coming from Cray was that it was such a techie company that customer benchmarking and industry standard benchmarking reported into marketing. 
Right. Because yeah, everybody was yeah, geeky yeah. enough to handle it. So Carlisle's group was heavily involved with the SAP Benchmark. Well, and it was and great that for was me. my team. Yeah, right. And so it was awesome. They it were awesome. awesome. So I was working with all those engineers. So we, we were basically working hand in glove. And so I'm meeting them for the first time and really enjoying it. And what we – and Sheen, I don't know if you recall these details, but the this thing is running this benchmark, and it is just clearly on the way to be- beating every record out there. This thing is going to set this world record at, at GM for this SAP benchmark. And then the great sadness would happen. And there would be like three minutes of profound sadness where the machine is miserable and it is entirely unclear what's happening. Oh, I totally remember that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and so we are and, – and this is running on Solaris 2.6. And so the only tool that I've got is Lockstat, which is actually hugely valuable. And so I'm writing custom kernel modules to instrument the kernel. And that machine would take two hours to boot. And when I – I would fuck up, which I definitely did over that, you know, that other whatever the week that we worked on. And all of a sudden, you know, the guy who was working with the Cray is like, um, is there something wrong with the machine? You're like, oh, fuck, I just, the machine just bounced. And now I've got like two hours to think about what I've done wrong. But that with Shahini was actually after, so the, the, the root cause of that, I was convinced that the root cause of that was going to, we knew that the network stack was going insane. And I'm like, there is a software bug in here. There's a, there's a bug in the operating system, obviously. I mean, like the, oper- the operating system is suddenly chasing itself. And it, there was a bug in the operating system to a degree in that there was like an order of N cubed algorithm. But with the actual problem was that the for some reason, the operating system had been turned into a router. And what was actually happening is in the lab in which they were doing the test, there was another Cisco... A router that would bounce that had a firm its own firmware bug. This thing would basically reset, and when it reset, the E10K was misconfigured to act as a router. So it would volunteer to be like, "Oh, instead of being the world's fastest SAP machine, I could be the world's slowest router." <laughs> this is this is That's your blame it on the networking guys. This is your liquid cooled supercomputer <laughs> right, volunteering yeah, yeah. to be your link system. <laughs> That's exactly machine. right. That's exactly right. like I know how to route packets. It's like no, no, no. We really okay, great. I'm glad you know how to route packets. No, I can route packets very poorly. Please get out of my way. Because of course the operating system is like not, and that this is where you're getting into like all these suboptimalities. The operating system where it's like not really designed to be a router. And the and so Shaheen, I don't know that that was the root cause of that. And to me, that whole experience was really chilling because it was like I again had assumed that this was like going to be an OS bug. And actually in the end, it was a misconfigured system. And that you begin to realize that like, wait a minute, if this is a misconfigured system, and then we had that we took two weeks to debug that. And Shaheen, you remember that was around the we literally around the clock we, to make sure absolutely to make sure that yeah. somebody was working on that problem all the time because those machines were so valuable you could not let them sit idle. And I remember thinking like no like you could not have more resources on a problem than this one had. And boy, where does that leave the poor like just person that can't summon? The, these incredible resources for two weeks and you realize like we have got to have a better way of being able to answer these questions about the system so there you go Shaheen that's the origin story of D-Trace that's, that's wonderful that's wonderful can I also just ask two, can, can I just ask two hour boot time yeah that's no joke um, wh- why? why is that yeah uh, that, so oh. 
we didn't have certain things at the time that we did later on. I think that the file system yes. was not, yes. it was FSCKing itself to craziness, yep. if I'm remembering. Yep, you're right. It's Veritas. That was the other, because Courtney, you're exactly right. And the other, the part of what made the early 2000s an exciting time to be at Sun is that a bunch of us had kind of uh, looked at the state of the world with dissatisfaction. And one of the other things that was very dissatisfying, and you're right to latch onto it, is that FSCK time. And that's when Jeff was like, we've got to take a from scratch approach. Jeff Bonwork was like, we got to take file systems from scratch. And that was the origin of ZFS. I think that was Shaheen, but I, I did have a question uh, also for you, Shaheen. Uh, you were there at Sun, uh, so so you came in with the Cray acquisition there. At the same time, that was around the Thinking Machines acquisition. Is there any? Do you have any background on that? I, I was always curious. Uh, no, well, when we were at Cray, Thinking Machines was kind of a competition, right? And our joke was that they had the best food in the computer industry. This was before <laughs> Google before Google got the same, you know, the mantle. But, uh, but they were obviously hot, and they were very, very smart people. So the Think Machine acquisition, Tom would remember it better, had happened before the Cray acquisition. And, uh, and that's how Greg Papadopoulos came to the company and you know, went on to be the CTO. I, I, I was long gone from Sun by then, I think. So. Oh, where are you? Ah, okay. okay. And that's the origin story of Greg right. passing on oxide. Oh, I'm misguided. No, God bless Greg. Greg also funded Fishworks. I can't. I can't. I, he also did pass on oxide. So you know, there you go. Mixed bag. They were certainly another example. I think uh, to Brian's earlier point of you know, extremely smart people, but from a business standpoint, just kind of all over the place. All totally all over the place. And that, that that was their reputation. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, if, if, if we can go back and talk about the people aspect of Seymour Cray, I, I mean, it, it, it seems like he's the kind of guy you would love to work for, and he'd be impossible to work with. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So he, did you have exposure to, to Cray at Cray, or was he in Chippewa Falls? No, he actually was already Cray's computer by the time the acquisition of yeah. FPS happened. And he was doing his gallium arsenide in Colorado Springs, was it? Yeah, Colorado Springs, yeah. 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 And of course, you know, when he passed, it was giant news at Cray. And everybody was like, because, you know, he actually stayed in the hospital for like a week before he passed right. away. Right. And everybody was saying, if anybody can pull through, he will, because he has that kind of a will. But he was surrounded by a couple of people who really made his stuff work, yes. like Les Davis, Les Davis yeah. Which, yeah. which is like one of the unsung heroes of supercomputing. And there were like two or three others around him. You know, if you went to Chippewa Falls in that era, it was just an incredible place. Extremely smart people, like doing nothing else but building this stuff. And I think those guys were the ones who made Seymour's designs work. Yeah, that's it's so interesting. And so actually, Shaheen, have you read Superman? I'd be curious to get your take on this. The so the he talks about Les Davis a lot, um, and it's it, he does I think leave you with the impression that Davis is every bit as important to these machines as as Cray is. And in fact, they were a very. They, they, it feels like they were they had a good like they kind of needed one another. I feel I feel like they did. They, they seem to have done their best work when they were working together. Definitely, definitely. And now Les stayed with. Cray Research. Of course, another joke was that Cray Research builds computers and Cray Computer does research. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and actually, it's funny that the, or I didn't realize this until reading the book, that the origin of Cray Research 
was deliberately wanting to get out from under the thumb of what he viewed as kind of short-term machines at CDC and kind of derivative machines at CDC and doing machines that were more speculative. And that's why they deliberately put race, research in the name when he kind of defected from, but yeah, that's, that's a funny, it certainly seems apt, Shane. That's right. Actually, I was at IBM when that happened. And when I came to, I mean, within IBM, the, there were a whole bunch of people who were faulting IBM management for passing on Cray because Cray had approached mm. them to say, will you, fund me to, will you fund me to do this? And they said no, so he'd gone and done his own thing. Yeah, interesting. And so I, what was it like, because I did not realize that the business systems division inside of Cray had come from an acquisition. Of course, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, I felt like that machine was so commercially minded. It had such a good idea of who the customer was it must have been tough to, I mean, that must have been a, a real juxtaposition with, certainly with Cray historically. I mean, it was. Yeah, the motivation for that, from what I understand, is that the commercial people, I mean, the story was like people like Walmart was coming, were coming to Cray saying, we'd like a commercial supercomputer. Now, the Cray supercomputers, they were running Linux, they were running Unix, sorry. And in fact, between. I think outside of Sun, Cray was the only other vendor that actually owned their copy of <laughs> Unix that bought it. And Unicos was a very nicely implemented Unix at the time, including like hierarchical storage management native to the OS. <laughs> and, and, and they've done all of that, but it was real memory. There was no virtual memory. It was 64-bit addressable. It was a pain in the neck to port database packages on it. Right. They had like Empress on it. They'd managed to do that. But like, you know, forget about, you know, I think they were working on Ingress. But anyway, they, they didn't. They, so they basically said, OK, we're going to go build a commercial supercomputer. And buying floating point system was an acceleration of that because it was already running Spark Solaris. We had all the catalog. Let's go take that and then build like a 64-way system for it. And that was the Cray Super Server 6400, the, the initial 64-way system. And then Starfire, codename Crossfire, was the UltraSpark version of it that actually was launched under Sun. Right. But that way they had been developed under, because I mean, it certainly, it, or feels like it launched very shortly after the acquisition. It feels like that thing was ready to go. Well, actually, David Yen's group and Clark's group were already working very nicely together, even with the XD bus that came from Xerox before even the x 80s I mean, the CS6400 was already a joint development with Sun. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, we, we had, and we did have, the software group did have a bunch of dragons. The XD bus was for the, the, the scorpions and dragons, the Sun 4Ds, um, which I've got very fond memories of uh, Newton, Pod, and all those that we had in our lab, Adam, did you, did you ever work on the Sun 4Ds at all? I never worked on them. I think I had to like test out some wands on them, but uh, never did anything serious. I, I, part of my problem, I get too much emotional attachment to these kind of machines. It's part of my problem. But I, I definitely remember those machines fondly. All these pets. And, uh, pretty much, exactly. Well, and I would, those are the ones that Roger would always have me uh, power cycle those machines. He was calling, when, when, if Roger <laughs> was calling me in the middle of the night to go power cycle a machine, it was definitely a, a dragon. It was a Sun 40. So, so Shaheen, that must have been, I mean, certainly that felt like, so from your perspective as well, that just felt like an incredible, uh, an incredible, like, I would say merger of, merger is almost too saccharine a word. I mean, it was, it, it's kind of confluence of the, what the future of commercial compute should be. Um, and it was just a fun time. It's 
felt very explosive. Oh, it was huge. And it was emotionally extremely strong for everybody. I mean, when Starfire was launched, people were like crying. Yeah, interesting. And, and, and you know, for all the FPS people who'd like slugged it for like so many years, it was like coming home. It was like we finally managed to do this. It was a big deal. A lot of, a lot of like sweat and tears and like emotion into that. Definitely. That's amazing. Because certainly from, I can tell you from the software side, it felt great. Because like this is, felt like this is such a vindication for the software vision. Because the software vision was really around. I mean, I came to Sun because Sun believed I felt more fervently in SMP than any other company. Um, the, uh, maybe SGI accepted SGI was the other one that also believed heavily in SMP. So it was a real confluence of, of visions in that regard. It truly was, yes. And, you know, Jan Peter gets a lot of credit for that because he was running Solaris at the time. And, 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 and oh, sorry, and, I had a little, little strange history thing, too. Uh, uh, I don't know if everyone knows, but SGI and Sun were almost one company at a point in time. Okay, you got to tell me that story. I actually don't know that story. When was that? So, okay. in the very, very, very early days, there was actually a meeting at, at Ed, Ed McNeely's uh, apartment in Mountain View. Um, where the founders all got together. And I, my understanding from folks that were there was that it was uh, no one could decide who was going to be CEO. So uh, it never happened. But So this what is, was, this what, is McCracken what, what and McNeely getting together. Well, what, what I heard was that Andy and Jim Clark didn't really like each other very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was Jim and, and yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it would have been interesting. The other interesting thing was the early SGI boxes were, you know, you know, licensed sun uh boards from stanford so you know there was a very incestuous relationship uh, obviously uh, between the companies but it was, it was oh i didn't know that it was interesting that yeah the early terminals were inside an early terminal was actually andy beckelstein designed uh sun board um uh, sun as in the stamp the stanford boards but it was the companies were really close in the early days and it's just amusing that um uh you know, history between the two of them. Yeah, and I feel that I came out at probably the height of the rivalry between the two companies. So I, I joined Sun in 1996, <laughs> and I feel like the, in many ways, Daryl, I would love to get your perspective on it, but the acquisition of Cray by SGI <laughs> is kind of the height of SGI hubris. Um, <laughs> do you disagree? It was for me, man. You, I, you should have seen how red I was in that meeting with the uh, execs trying to stop the sale, but... Uh, no, there was a point just around then too. When, when, internally at Silicon Graphics, it got up my nose. We, we had a corporate slide de uh, deck presentation um, in in our wonderful um, show, showcase the uh, 3D uh, PowerPoint thing that would. Um, but the, like the second slide was uh, talked about how we're uh, half the revenue of Sun, but twice the market valuation, and the, and therefore um, you, you know the customer is meant to take away something about how good we are. <laughs> And, and, right, exactly. and, and I, I, I thought that's the most disgusting slide to show a customer. It's like yeah. you're, you're overhyped as a company, and but but every so many sales guys would take this stupid corporate slide and stick it in the slide decks. And that would that particularly got up my nose. I made sure that any presentation I was in, we did not use that slide. Um, but no, I think you're right. The the cray sale to me just just killed it. And that was when I, I turned around and started to look at leaving. Uh, yeah, well, I, I really felt that, you know, before it was either Shaheen or Tom, I think it was Tom that cruelly mentioned uh, Rocket Rick Beluzzo and the uh, the, the movement to, to, to Windows <laughs> NT, which was such a tragedy to watch. And the because it felt like and that to me felt like it was happening broadly in the industry. I mean, that to me was what kept me certainly at Sun was the belief in 
system software and not mortgaging our future to to right. Microsoft. No, no, that was that was a disaster. That was just after my time. But that was then watching it as an outsider. It was just like, what the hell is Silicon Graphics doing? Is sort of committing suicide? Um, but while I was there, still, you know, we had the Origin series come out to replace the Challenges, uh, which was a, a, a Numa machine. But it's sort of a funny little anecdote, you know, the higher Numa machine. But it was it was like as John Mashey described it, the most wonderfully scalable uh, Numa architecture packaged in the most unscalable uh, <laughs> pack packaging. The first generation packaging was just terrible. But there's a history for why because we were targeting super the supercomputer market, so we made the, the economics only worked if you were buying 100 CPUs. If you wanted to buy a 16 CPU box, it didn't work. So that was, you know, that was sort of the second major failure after the, the sale of Cray. Interesting. Transition to Origin. But the the day that we announced all the stuff, we announced the low-end Octane, low-end O2 workstation, and their marketing message was all about being not NUMA. It was all about being NUMA, you know, shared memory for the GPU and the, and the thing, and how... Um, uh, how sorry, Yuma, UMA, Uniform Memory Access. So how shared memory is great for your GPU, and that was literally their marketing message. And we came out with the Origin at, at the same time, and our message was Numa is good. So you had two, the low end and the high end of the company <laughs> marketing Numa versus Numa. And I'm, you know, why did you not? Did they even coordinate with each other the marketing message? And that was just another final straw. I mean, these things were by then piling up on top of each other is like, this is not a good thing for a company. Yeah, would have been, I mean, you mentioned the challenger, because I remember, Sheen, do you remember the ads that, SGI had very good ads that they were running very briefly about why I think Netscape was running the challenger, and they had this because they rock ad with the guy with the Nerf gun, and I remember thinking like, man, that's good, it's good copy, and it felt like th that was, uh, I think it felt like SGI having a real strategic window, but then um well oh they, they were they were great at that they all would remember this ad about i think it was like the triple seven boeing oh yeah and they had like a big photo of this giant plane and underneath it was like this tiny box and it says here's like the greatest airplane in the world and here's the box it came in yeah <laughs> that was great it was it was it was interesting the marketing was not we were not connected to corporate marketing at all on the commercial service side and we were sort of this big disconnect and that sort of got solved one day uh, marketing corporate marketing this an amazing ad which was just a field of sheep um and so when we was just starting to get into early web servers and uh it's hard to remember back when computers had trouble running web servers but the early uh work with the low end our low end servers just running uh, web servers in racks and we were doing quite we were doing quite good in that market, but this ad was a tremendous. It was uh, a field of sheep trying to get through a gate. And it, the message was something like, um, what do you, uh, the worst thing that happens is if you build a popular website. And uh, it was just a really good visual ad. Anyhow, that started a good discussion where we got closer to corporate marketing. And we're doing more stuff with them. Yeah, yeah. So someone mentioned the T3D and T3E, and that was another big era at Cray, because clearly MPPs were coming. And of course, Cray was very uh, loath to do clusters, because clusters were like not going to work at all, but MP, you know, MPPs would. So the whole interconnect and space sharing instead of time sharing and all that OS, and they kind of got the mock microkernel and put that into the Unicos. And, uh, and of course, they needed a CPU, and they ended up going with Alpha, and that was another big, you know, I think they installed a few T3Ds, and it was a, it, it became sort of the company, and I think they lost 
the IP with that when SGI acquired the company. And when they released Cray again, they basically released it pretty bare bones. They didn't have a whole lot of uh, IP when it when that happened. So that's when it got acquired by Terra from SGI? That is correct. I think a few years after SGI acquired Cray, it decided that it needed to spin it out again. It kept all the juicy stuff, like the hierarchical storage management stuff. It was, I forget what it's called now, a DMF, Data Migration Facility. They kept that. They kept all the patents. They kept all the everything. But they basically let go of all the vector systems and maybe the It was at this moment that the Twitter space ended suddenly. Brian was disconnected. And for some reason, uh, that brought the Twitter space down. Uh, We restarted the Twitter space a few seconds later. We're missing a little bit of the conversation, but only a few seconds. Stories to tell because he, I mean obviously he was very intimately involved or, or knew that that the, uh, the oh, acquisition he was, was happening. He was very intimately involved, and we were in violent agreement because from oh, totally. nice, you know from the sun side from, from the cray side I was surprised. The whole the whole the whole SGI cray deal was a twilight zone deal. It, it made no sense. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, or it made perfect sense. It made beautiful sense. It just made no sense for them to do. It. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's I right. mean, yeah. it, it was glorious. And I remember, God, I got, I mean, there just so many E10K stories. I remember the, do you remember Boo.com? I do not know. Boo. Okay, Boo.com was maybe the first, Adam, do you remember Boo.com? Yeah, they were like a, they were like a <laughs> online market, maybe like eBay or something. Yeah, right? you're so close. Yeah, they streetwear. They were going to sell streetwear on, and it was going to be a very kind of rich internet experience. The problem is that everyone was still on like 2,400 pod modems, <laughs> so it was like a little early. And so they were a super early flame out. The Benefit family founded them, and they they flamed out in like early 2000. But Shaheen, they had an E10K. They had an E10K with a single CPU board in it. And <laughs> it's like, oh man, I, and I, we got the sales guy that, and actually, so the, then the CTO of Boo, when he realized that Benetton was getting cold feet and the family was going to pull out, they pull out, he starts his own LLC to buy the E10K from them. And then he sold it into the gray market when it was, I mean, he made a bunch of money as a, a he made a bunch of money flipping E10Ks. I don't know how many people have done that in history, but he definitely did. Oh, wow. Well, there was a time when he could do that because we were production limited for pretty much the entire history when I was there. And, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember, I mean, th- what they told us is that they were having to ramp up a third shift to get that thing. I mean, they just like the, the manufacturer, they were manufacturing it. It was a manufacturing bottleneck, ultimately. It, it was. And then we started one in Newark and in addition to Hillsborough, Oregon. So we had like two manufacturing sites and then eventually also in Scotland. So it was it was like a really popular system. I think we, I think at the end of the day, it was something like over 5,000 units sold around the world. Man, that's amazing. That is amazing. And there were, and I mean, you remember, uh, Jared and Enron had a bunch of them, Adam. I mean, oh, sure, one. yeah. Which was great. The Shaheen, did you know Jared Jensen at Enron? Did you talk to him at all? No, no. I basically between Clark and I, we split the geo. So he was doing U.S. and I was doing international because he Got didn't it. like traveling long distances. <laughs> well, then, so yeah, he so Enron was. I'm mean, obviously Enron, a crooked company that that 
uh, exploited California's power market, but also uh, had some really really sharp IT folks. And Jared was an IT at Enron with a bunch of, of 64Ks and, or E10Ks and fully racked out E10Ks. And the uh, we he was in our platinum beta program. And there was this great moment where, you know, he has got this Southern accent and he definitely enjoys laying it on thick before people know how, I mean, he's a super sharp guy. And before people kind of know that, I mean, don't you feel that he turns up the accent? To... Oh yeah, he starts fixing to uh, do lots of things. <laughs> fixing, when... he's fixing to do everything. And you know, I don't know about y'all, but I and everyone's thinking like, who? Like we're all in IT because we are a big Sun customer. But who's this Yogo? Like he doesn't have any. And finally, they go around the room, being like, you know, what are um, what, what are people actually running? It's like, well, we got, we got, I don't know, we got five, six E10Ks, but I'm fixing to get two more. And this is at a time when people are like. I, I'm not allowed to like look at an E10K, and this guy has got like six of them. <laughs> um, but it was definitely, I, I was a gr- it was a great machine, honestly. You, you all, and she didn't talk about the interconnect. I mean, that that was a it was a very impressive interconnect on the E10K. Yeah. So the CS6400 was four parallel buses that did address and data, and that was the XD bus that could do one bus, two buses, and four. The one was the Spark Server 1000. The two was like Spark Center 2000, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And then the right. four was the CS6400. By the time it got to the Ultra Spark, they could do point-to-point communication. So Starfire had a crossbar, 16-way, 16-by-16 crossbar that connected every board to every other board for data. But then addresses were like a, you know, around, around the, you know, the, the single wire sort of a thing. Uh, and then with the one after that, the Sunfire, Sunfire 15K or 20K, whatever it was, the address was also crossfire, a crossbar, so point to point. Now the point to point connection also allowed us to partition the machine, so we had right. hardware partitioning because you could isolate a subset of boards and boot a copy of Solaris on it separately. And you know our joke was. E10K was multiple versions of Solaris, otherwise known as <laughs> MVS. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And so, it, it, because the, the E10K, because it did perform well, I got to believe that there were Cray customers who were attracted to the economics of running MPI on, on an E10K. Was that, I, I mean, I assume that there were HPC customers for the E10K. Certainly, I dealt with a couple. We certainly did. I think, if I'm not mistaken, something like 10, 15% of the install base were actual HPC. Right. And those were bigger memory systems. And uh, it really was more of a memory thing than a CPU thing, if I remember correctly. Uh, and of course, you know, UltraSpark was decent. It had the, uh, you know, combined uh, multiply add instruction. Uh, uh, but it wasn't like exactly a supercomputer. So, it was not exactly yeah, a supercomputer. Yeah, I was going yeah. to say like, yeah, you don't feel like you need to be too. <laughs> I mean, we, no, 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 I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, speaking of that, back to Seymour, one of the uses obviously was like climate modeling, weather, weather forecasting. But the spooks were using Cray supercomputers because he had a bit count, pop count instruction. Right. And that instruction was specifically put in to facilitate whatever it is that they do. Okay, I've always wondered that because I, I I know the legend of Popsy, the the spark instruction. But what is it that the spooks w- w- could do with that? Presumably, if he can quickly count the number of bits in a ward that is flipped, that are flipped, is a useful thing. 
because he can do logical operations like 64 at a time. Kind of a thing. That's as close as I've been able to understand it. Adam, I've always had the same kind of question. I'm like, I get that like Popsy is used to like fund civil wars in El Salvador or something. Like, I, don't, I, I Popsy, I get it. It's used for like for espionage. I don't understand. Right. I I, that, that, my understanding was that it, it, right, it could enable untold evil, and that don't worry about it because it's now emulated. <laughs> right. Right. And we, because uh, I think we ultimately did end up adding Popsy. They did end up adding Popsy to Spark, I believe. I, mean, I believe so too. I yeah, yeah, yeah they, it was the, a the big spook special. Yes, yeah. Spark has Popsy, but, but, it, it, but it trapped for every version of Spark that I worked with. Oh, oh interesting. interesting. Yeah. And, and the Spooks never complained, as far as Adam knows. <laughs> as far as I know, they, they weren't calling me. Well, you know. They wouldn't. They just follow you. Yeah. I mean, Daryl, do you know? Do you know the pop count stuff? You might know. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, sorry. I, I know it's crypto related, right? For it's about computing Hamming distance. Uh, I, I, right. I think it, yeah. it's generically for a lot of things. It's not specifically for just crypto, right? But anytime you're dealing with bit sets or things like Hamming distance, or like there's a lot of uses that don't involve overthrowing small countries. <laughs> so you say. Uh, so the, the other the question, so Shaheen, I guess you guys came to Cray, you said after Cray himself was at Cray Computer. So this is also, I am now dying to know more about Steve Chen and supercomputing systems just because every dimension of that company is just so out of sight. So Steve Chen, uh, you know, was the guy who really made Cray YMP happen. Cray XMP maybe even. Because Cray 1 was done by Seymour. I think Cray XMP, Steve Chen was like the chief engineer on. And That's then right, Cray yeah. YMP, if I'm not mistaken. And then I think after that, he branched out and IBM decided to fund him because they'd missed out on Seymour. And he went to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, not Chippewa, like you know, a little bit farther out, and set up shop. I remember at the time, the idea was that he was, in fact, taking too many risks on too many dimensions, unlike Seymour. Yes. And that he was That's pushing right. yeah. it on too many fronts, and it was like a really challenging thing. And of course, in fact, after a while, it didn't work out. Now, he ended up at Sequent for a while, and then he had another Tombu, I think, was a system company, because I talked to him when I was at Sun, and they were doing some startup that Greg wanted me to look at. And um, I actually had breakfast with him like a few years ago because he's in the area and he's still like doing some cloud oriented thing but he's obviously another like you know hall of famer in this world yeah and i would it'd be really interesting to talk with him and get his perspective on it all because yeah that's certainly the the, the murray in the superman definitely i mean adam that's your your 78 layer board and um, it definitely feels like they are just pushing things too hard in too many directions. And then they're also like rewriting all of software from scratch, which is not a recipe for shipping on time. Um, there is, a, and Shahina, there's a line that I, that actually, Adam, may I do an out loud reading from Superman Demon? No, by all means, I encourage it. Yeah. All right. So the, this is after. Do you mind if I throw in one comment before we get sure. too far yeah. ahead? Uh, I just wanted to add that. When you're encrypting something, it looks indistinguishable from random noise. And when you decrypt it, you are almost always going to get a significant entropy drop. So almost no matter what the encryption method is or whatever encryption you're breaking, 
you know you've won because you did a pop count over the output and said, oh, look, the entropy has changed dramatically from the entropy before. Oh, I actually uh... found the right key, and now I'm happy. So if I'm wasting a lot of cycles on pop count, I'm going to be able to grade a lot fewer keys that I've attempted pretty much no matter what I'm trying to decrypt. Well, there's your answer, Fishbulb. So pop count is really <laughs> great for the like, ha-ha, <laughs> everything just got better, and the entropy dropped, and... Now all your secrets are belong to us. Way cool. There you go. Well, that makes sense. And, I, you, know, you got to check a lot. No, right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. By the way, we're going to be checking that a lot. So th th thank you very much, Aaron. That is very, uh, that's, th th there you go. That answers that question. Um, the, so Adam, this is after, so as with all these companies, supercomputing systems fails because they are all locked out of their offices. Um, was it actually a frigid morning in January? I mean, it sounds like it was a morning in January. It described as frigid, it probably was. Anyway, so uh, two months later, one of the company, I'm reading from the book now, one of the company's engineers was driving the backwoods of Wisconsin miles from Eau Claire when he spotted a familiar object, the SS-1. There on the grounds of a small farm nestled in the northern Wisconsin forest sat the machine's outer frame. He slammed on the brakes, veered the car to the side of the road, and jumped out. Examining the machine's skin, he spotted boxes containing more parts from the SS-1. He gently ran his hand over the parts. His heart sank. Whatever hope they'd had for resurrecting the machine was now gone. He knew there was no turning back. The SS-1 had been sold for scrap. Which is just like, oh, man. <laughs> and, but I think it also goes to, I think, the, you know, Shaheen, you were mentioning earlier that the folks at, at Floating Point Systems feeling like that sense of exhilaration to watch their machine actually come all the way to market and come into like a market that was ready for it and hitting everything right. And how, I mean, you can see why people were, you know, in tears when their, when their machine actually like lands, because, you, you know, that's the alternative. The alternative is you're driving a backcountry road and your machine is like on a farm somewhere about to be turned into, you know, a tractor. Oh, heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. I am heartbreaking. And just like the way it's described to like running his hands over the parts. It's like, oh, man. Oh. <laughs> I'm right there with him. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, we've been wanting to keep these to about an hour. I know we went over here. Um, Adam, my apologies to your toddler who I know gets <laughs> I, I, I keep waiting for him to like join his space under his own account and tell you to like, hey. you know, Feed him dinner. Um, but this is great. Shaheen, Daryl, thank you so much. And everyone, I, Courtney, thank you. I, Jason, Simeon, everyone, thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. And I, it, just an inc incredible for the, the folks that actually live this history to be able to, to share it with us. Can I tell one last um, anecdote? Um, Do it. Yeah. I was thinking yeah, live. The machine that won, along with the people who won the uh, Gordon Bell Price Performance Prize in 2000 called Bunyip, while the people who actually put it together and were running the software were elsewhere. Um, it was in the computer science department at the ANU in Canberra, and it was uh, 384 uh, Pentium 3550 processors. Um, and this is kind of supercomputing like working an angle rather than supercomputing like massive engineering effort. There was these epochs dual processor slot one motherboards, which were going really cheap. And there were these Pentium 3 550s, which were at a really good price point for single precision SSE. 
and um, so 32-bit floating point. And they managed to convince the judges that this problem was genuine, and I've got some issues with that. But the particulars of this story is that while this thing was running its, you know, big benchmark, it's actually so 192 nodes, and it's got a fancy network architecture, which turned out to be irrelevant. Um, but machines kept blowing up. The capacitors would actually go pop off the board, and I was running these machines up to the local vendor who had collaborated with us and who thought that somehow they were involved in supercomputing because they just had a big supply of these Epochs dual processor boards. Turned out in the end, the things that were dying were the Pentium 3 550s, which were based on the old discrete cache, which had the large geometry processor and were drawing a heap more current. And the Pentium 3 550s that were all on copper mine with the 256K on die cache and drawing much less power, um, they weren't actually degrading the capacitors on these boards as fast because it was during the capacitor plague. And so basically, we just had this cusp where half of the machine was bought with old Pentium 3s and half of it was bought with new Pentium 3s and half of it just broke constantly during this mammoth run to you know produce these results that apparently meant that the ANU Computer Science Department was um, heralding a new age of supercomputing. But it was really Virginia Tech, only on a smaller scale. If you remember Virginia Tech, there you go. Yeah, right. See, the, the, the consequences of I love I love the capacitor plague. I want to get more details on the capacitor plague. But um, Virginia Tech. Well, it was a stolen recipe from a Japanese capacitor, electrolytic capacitor um, manufacturer turned up in, um, I guess, Taiwanese capacitor manufacturer at that point. I don't think China was kind of there yet. Um, but it had a missing component, which actually was part of the electrolyte that stopped it from developing gas. And so these things, when you had large um, ripple currents through them, they would get hot and then the electrolyte would start to outgas. And then you know, those bulges that you see in the top of old electrolytic capacitors, that's the sign that they want to go gaboom. And these ones would blow themselves all the way across the, the case and sort of land on the... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so and, and, you know, so it was, very, it was very comical, except I was running up and down and basically just swapping pieces <laughs> of the, the organs of this machine, trying to keep enough of it running, that they could do this thing. Um, but where was I going with all of this? Uh, Virginia Tech, you remember they had a whole bunch of um, G5 uh, rack. Uh, Apples, Apple rack racks, right? Systems. Yeah, yeah, Apple yeah, G5. Yeah, yeah Apple and absolutely thing, quashed that. They wouldn't let anybody else do it. That's right, because it didn't have ECC. Someone worked out that basically it was just a Linpack demo machine and they had just like a some incredibly anemic file server at the core of it. So in terms of its ability to do real work, they just took it, took it apart and replaced it with ECC G5 rack systems later on. And, you know, that was what they actually moved into production with. So it was just basically, here's $10 million, get us on the top 500. And they got to number three, but it didn't really mean very much. Anyway, yeah, Bunyip was a bit like that. Anyway. There you go. All right. Well, exploding computers is a good way to as a good way to end as, as any. All right. Well, um, thanks again, everyone. Yeah. Now, now, just speaking of exploding computers and racks left in the middle of cornfields, how's the oxide rack bring up going? <laughs> exactly. There you go. Well, well, we'll uh, we'll, we'll tell you next time. Uh, no, we have actually blown none of them up. Exactly. Uh, we did have. Uh, we, we've had some excitement. No fires, but it's been, it's going well. We're having fun. So. Um, 
we'll, we'll we can talk more about that next time. But um, no no bad caps, and unfortunately, I'm not a victim of the capacitor plague, the great capacitor plague. So, all right, thanks everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you guys. Thanks a lot. A lot of you fun. You bet. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for joining, guys. Thank you.